The first reading is taken from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is John chapter 20, verse 19 to 31. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in the book. But these are also written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Gospel of Christ. Praise be to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we ask your spirit to drive us out into the wilderness of this world to proclaim good news, good news of new creation. Give us faith to believe your Son indeed rose from the dead. Give us power to bear witness to that with our lips and with our lives. 
for the sake and glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the new creation had just burst out of the belly of the tomb as if, as though death had just given birth to life. Who's heard of such a thing? I mean, light couldn't finally, light could finally escape from inside a black hole. Water started streaming out of the barren rock in the desert. Creation coming out of chaos. It was that first Easter morning in our gospel reading, and Mary Magdalene was the first. She was the first to behold this peculiar sight, just as Moses beheld that burning bush that did not burn up. It was a very strange sight. No one would believe that. No one could. Now the risen Jesus commissions Mary to go and tell the other disciples on what she had just seen. So she went out that morning as the first Christian evangelist and bore witness. I have seen the Lord. But even with the rising of the new creation that she had just seen, with the rising of the sun that day, nothing else much had changed in the world. The sun still set that Easter morning. Evening came. The world was again covered in darkness. The new creation had indeed dawned, but there was still night. That night night still felt cold. It still felt merciless for for the disciples. That first Easter night, Jesus' disciples were together behind locked doors for fear of the Jewish leaders. They had the instinct that if Jesus had not escaped the leaders, they would be next on the list. So the disciples were also hopeless. Now despair stacked upon their fear. They had hoped only in Jesus, but then Jesus was dead. So they thought. And then despite Mary Magdalene's testimony, excited as we were, very bewildered, having seen Jesus, the disciples were unmoved. They were unshaken from their despair, from their fears. I mean, who could take seriously a hearsay of of the impossible when you're already drowning emotionally? Who would believe the impossible? It was the evening of the new creation. It's still night even today. We who are Christians with the church around the world, we persist. We persist today in our present darkness, still encumbered by the same fears, by the same despairs, sorrows, and suffering. And the world is yet dull and undelivered. We feel that even now. Even when we believe, even when we say that the first light of new creation had already appeared. We say that, we believe that, we try to believe that, but it's still night. The night remains cold and merciless. We're today between Easter and when Jesus, we believe, should reappear. We're today still living through the evening of Easter when the sun had already set on us, even as it did set on the disciples. But it's in the dead of night, it's in the dead of night, it's in the evening that Jesus chose to appear and met with his disciples. It's still in the dead of night that Jesus appears and meets with us, with you, with me. So the question for us here is, how then shall we live and carry on in these in-between times? How are we going to live while it's still dark, while it's still the evening of the new creation, from when the first immortal light had appeared and had set, and then it should rise again to not set anymore? How should we live? That's the question. 
So please turn with me if you are able in your Bibles in John chapter 20. We read in verse 19. Again, it's Sunday evening. Jesus came through the locked doors and then he stood among his disciples, his fearful and hopeless disciples. And then his first words were a greeting, a Jewish greeting, shalom be with you. His first words were a friendly greeting, but they were now charged with new and literal meaning. See, the well-being of God, Shalom, had come to be with his people still in distress, still in despair. Shalom had come through barriers, had come through locked doors to be near his people, all shriveled and hidden away. Shalom had come as one who had suffered, subjected to all that has befallen humanity. And then he's, Shalom had come to overcome them all. So no longer was Shalom this, just this friendly greeting. It's not just wishing someone well. It's not just a prayer or a wish for someone. Shalom became a person. The well-being of God became a person. Someone who suffered, someone who died, someone who then got out from the other side. Jesus, now the shalom of God, has every right and every credential to declare peace over every situation, over every circumstance. Was Jesus lying when he said, peace be with you? Was that just a platitude? When someone like Jesus had risen from the dead, he could say whatever the circumstance is, and he speaks right now to us, no matter what we're feeling, I'm not diminishing what we're feeling, but he says right now, peace be with you. He has every right to say that. He's come from the dead. Peace be with you. So then in front of his disciples, Jesus holds out his credentials, his certificate of authenticity. His hands still scarred, the spear through his right side, a wound that marked him uniquely from the rest of the victims of crucifixion. But in the Jewish scriptures, we know that the wound on his side was not unique to Jesus. It was not unique to him. Earlier on, there was another figure whose side, as it were, was wounded for the life of another. Because long ago, God had taken from the side of Adam to fashion his wife Eve out of the likeness of Adam, but very different from him. And then this time, from the wound, as it were, of Jesus' side, God had brought forth the bride of Christ, a new humanity, the church made from the likeness of Jesus' wounded, suffered, and death body, carrying with him the death of his body, yet different from him. Now, early medieval paintings depicted this very, very bizarre scene at Jesus' crucifixion. They depicted the church, as it were, as a woman wearing a royal crown on her head, dressed in white robes, emerging out of the right side of Jesus' wound. is a very weird and grotesque image. The church marked by blood and water that poured from his side, blood symbolizing the Eucharist and water, the baptism. These are the two sacraments of the church. Now, as strange as these paintings were, they showed how deeply the medieval church had reflected on this new and strange creation that has happened on the world. That new creation had streamed out of Jesus' wound like water from the barren rock that Moses had struck in the desert. New creation was birthed from death, the world's healing from the wounding of God. The new humanity, the church marked and identified by the tokens of Jesus' suffering and death. And we memorialize that by baptism and by the Eucharist, blood and water. 
How the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians that Jesus himself, he says, is our peace. Jesus is our shalom, who has made in his own wounded body a new humanity, a new creation, giving birth to a people made up of reconciled enemies, Jews and non-Jews, the lawful and the lawless together. Peace, shalom, had come with such a cost. The peace of God had come at such a cost. And what a cost we shall see when we behold Jesus Christ with our own eyes. Jesus carries in his resurrected body the trophies of his passion. Just like how the shepherd king David carried the severed head and the sword of Goliath when he triumphed over the enemies of God. Jesus' eternal scars memorialize and prove his great victory over sin and death forever. Now, the English free church minister, Edward Shillito, had survived the massacre of the First World War. After seeing firsthand the butchery of the war, he penned his poem, Jesus of the Scars. Jesus of the Scars. In the last stanza is what Edward wrote. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Peace had come at such a cost. This same peace abides with us even now, amidst the evening of the new creation between Easter and when Jesus should reappear. Peace, peace be with you. Shalom be with you. We read on in verse 21. Immediately after pronouncing shalom upon his disciples, Jesus commissions them. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Jesus had just declared the official ceasefire between heaven and earth. So he immediately, upon saying that, he sets up an embassy. He sets up an embassy in this world. Heaven's peacekeeping commission in and through the church with his followers, us Christians, serving as diplomats, as ambassadors, as peacekeepers, were equipped with the news of this cosmic ceasefire, news about the resurrection of the dead, news about life after the grave, news of the forgiveness of sins, news that people can be reconciled to the divine creator. Now with this new apostolic task force, the manner of Jesus commissioning his followers out to the world is similar, he said, to how God had commissioned him to the world. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now, what does that mean? How does Jesus send us out like the Father sent the Son? It could not mean that we're to go and die for the sins of others. That's not what he means. Rather, we're to go and suffer. We are to go and suffer. And that they may die even for bearing witness to the gospel of peace. That's how Jesus came into this world. Suffering, wounded, mortal, weak, helpless for the help of the poor, the oppressed, those oppressed by demons, by the structures of oppression. That's how we're sent to suffer and even die, to bear witness to the gospel. See, Jesus is setting up his peacekeeping embassy in the world, assumes a world yet in ignorance, in hostility, in disobedience to the gospel. The church goes into the world that doesn't know the gospel, that doesn't want the gospel, that doesn't obey the gospel, in the church, we're supposed to embody that, though we fail at all these aspects. 
We're to be the first to repent and embody the obedience in the belief of the gospel. No student is greater than the teacher. If the world hated me, it'll hate you. Sharing in the mission of Christ means to share in Christ's passion. His mission is sharing in his passion. Bearing witness is no less than bearing the cost. The Father sent Jesus to suffer for the gospel. Even so, Jesus is sending us, sending you and me. That's the cost. Now, with so great a task, with so great a cost, how could we come even close to fulfilling this? You even want that? Do I want this? That's what we're called to. Have we counted the cost? Jesus did not commission us without so great a resource, without so great a presence in our lives. Because immediately after commissioning the disciples, in verse 22, Jesus breathed upon them. He breathed them the Holy Spirit. Now there's a debate over this part of the gospel because in the book of Acts, it said that the Spirit came on Pentecost. But here it looks like Jesus gave them the Spirit just right after the resurrection. What seems to be a contradiction here in the timeline? What's going on here? Now again, the, John's gospel is unique. It's theologically stylistic. It's being different from the gospels from the other synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But this moment of Jesus with his disciples, it was being portrayed, as it were, because of John's theological trajectory. This is the new creation. So John is making parallels to the original creation story. Because remember, back in Genesis, God shaped Adam from the dust, and then what did God do? God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And then it says that Adam became a living being. The word breath can also mean spirit. So thereafter receiving God's breath, God prepared for Adam a garden. He prepared a garden of Eden. Then sends him out to till it, to tend it, to work for it, to extend it throughout the world. That was the original commission, wasn't it? So that story in Genesis is resonant here in our gospel reading. Jesus breathes his spirit into the new humanity, the fledgling church. That just emerged from the dust of their fears, the dust of their despair, and then empowering them now to fulfill their commission of tending, working, extending the new creation into this world. That's what's happening here. Receive the Holy Spirit. And Jesus continues in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now, this does not mean that Christians have the power to absolve sins. That's the prerogative only to God. Rather, Jesus is speaking about having ambassadorial authority. Whatever an ambassador speaks and enacts, it's equal to the authority of their state to the extent that the state has conferred power to the ambassador to the extent that what's being said and enacted aligns with the state. I mean, in that sense... Christians, we the church have the ambassadorial authority to pronounce, to pronounce and announce the absolution and pardon of sins as far as God has decreed it. As far as God has decreed it. And how has he done so? Whoever believes in the Son who should not perish but have eternal life. It entirely depends on how someone responds to the preaching of the gospel. That determines whether or not they're forgiven. 
right? If someone believes the gospel, they're forgiven. Someone does not believe the gospel, they remain in their sins. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus was saying here. So even in this evening of the new creation, between Easter and when Jesus should reappear, Jesus yet comes to us. He pronounces peace and shalom. He commissions us for apostolic witness, breathes on us the Holy Spirit, and trusts us with the ministry of pronouncing absolution of sins, the forgiveness of sins. This is our commission. We have tasks to do as Easter people. We have work to do between Easter and when Jesus should reappear. Now finally, we reach, we reach the climactic moment in John's gospel. This is the climax of John's gospel, where we see the strongest ever assertion of faith from Thomas, who was historically been typecasted as the doubter. Now Thomas was not with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared. Thomas only gets to hear from everyone as they bore witness to him, saying the same words, that Mary had said, we have seen the Lord, Thomas. We have seen the Lord. But Thomas was not convinced. Even by the collective testimonies from 11 of his friends, likely all throughout the week, each day, they're probably giving Thomas some space, but then coming back to him, we've seen the Lord. Mary and the 10 others kept pressing Thomas about the matter. That would be the natural thing to do when you've seen something so impossibly real you have to convince your friend, but he wouldn't believe. It had to take eight days. What happened? Sunday came. Everyone gathered behind locked doors again, still afraid, having met Jesus, despite having met Jesus. But this time, Thomas was with them. Somehow, he was like, okay, maybe Jesus will reappear. Maybe then I'll, I'll believe you. Who knows? He's still skeptical. And then Jesus shows up. And his first words were peace. Again, peace over everyone who's still afraid. Then Jesus, in verse 27, immediately turns to Thomas and takes him up on what he had demanded earlier from the disciples. He presents his body as evidence and invites Thomas to inspect it. Here are my wounds, my scars. Don't disbelieve, but believe. That was both reprimand and command, rebuking Thomas for not believing his friends. You have these closest friends with you, loyal, who's about to even die and cower with you. You would not believe what they're saying. Don't make them out to be liars. Believe what they've said. Don't doubt, but believe. Now underneath that, what Jesus was really saying is, you don't need to see him. You don't need to touch him to believe that he rose from the dead. You don't need to encounter the risen Jesus to believe that he rose from the dead. See, this moment with Thomas was not Jesus giving Thomas this exclusive special treatment by showing him his risen body and scars. That was primarily to make Thomas into an apostle, right? An apostle needs to see Jesus firsthand, that he rose from the dead, just like how Jesus showed up to the apostle Paul at the Damascus Road. That needed, as it were, to happen so that he could bear apostolic witness. But the point of it is, no one needs to see Jesus to believe. That's what Jesus said. Believe what your friends have said. You need only to believe what the apostles have said, what Mary said. You don't need to see me to believe that the resurrection happened. Pa Thomas, you didn't believe the testimony about me. Believe what they've said. Don't be disbelieve them. 
Don't make them out to be liars. Believe their words. Believe the scriptures. Believe what people have said about the risen Jesus. Today, we and everyone else need only to believe in what has already been said. Now, Thomas knew without a doubt that this was Jesus. Then came the strongest, clearest and strongest assertion about Jesus Christ in all four Gospels. Coming from skeptical Thomas, in verse 28, My Lord and my God. Thomas is often caricatured as this great doubter. But he here was a great believer. My Lord, my God. He jumped to that very end of the conclusion. Jesus, you are Lord, you are God. That's the summation of the creeds. The simplest, strongest confession from a person about Christ having risen from the dead. This was the climax of John's gospel. Everything that John was writing was leading up to this point. Jesus is Lord and God. The great doubter Thomas became a great believer. Now Thomas' figure, he stands as a figure to represent all of us. He represents all of us in the church who do believe, who struggles to believe, and everyone else in the world who are skeptical, who do not yet believe, between Easter and when Jesus should reappear. Thomas stands as someone teetering between doubt and belief, as both apostle and the worldly skeptic. John is inviting us to believe the same way Thomas did. He's inviting us to take seriously what Thomas exclaimed, my Lord, my God, to take seriously what he's been saying in the Gospels. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus historically rose from the dead? Do you believe that that actually happened? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and God? Do you say that he is your Lord and your God, my Lord and my God? Do not disbelieve. Believe. You need not see him. You need only to believe the words that the apostles have borne witness. Now let me end. Let me end with this apostolic word from Peter as he commended from our first reading what he wrote to that dispersed and persecuted church throughout Asia Minor when they suffered under the hands of Roman Emperor Domitian. Peter was encouraging the Christians that their suffering was producing for them greater faith in Jesus. This Jesus that they have never seen at all and resulting in greater honor for Jesus. This is what he wrote. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we presently wait, we're so tired of waiting, aren't we? In this lockdown, just this partial way of living, we're so tired of waiting, but we're called to wait. We wait for the revelation of Jesus during this evening, this night of the new creation, between Easter and when Jesus should reappear. We believe in him. Let's continue to believe in him. Though we have not seen Jesus, let us love him. Though we cannot see him now, it's enough that we believe in what has been said of him, in what the Bible has said, that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, that Jesus is risen from the dead, that there is forgiveness of sins. Don't disbelieve. 
Believe. Believe. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.